So here's a wild thing I just read. There's a new robotic drug capsule that can deliver drugs like insulin directly to your gut because the top of the pill spins and tunnels through your mucus barrier. Meaning a pill you swallowed could deliver drugs that normally could only happen if injected or given in a hospital because it's a robotic drug capsule. Pretty cool, right? This is Pulse Check, and I'm Megan Wilson, the health team's lobbying reporter. Here are a couple headlines I'm watching this week. A third ALS drug received an FDA blessing, but patient advocacy groups and other experts have raised their eyebrows at the annual $158,000 price tag. Monkeypox vaccine maker Bavarian Nordic announced its first bilateral deal with a country in Latin America. The company didn't announce which country, but this is a step towards expanded global access for the monkeypox vaccine. And since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, the Biden administration has touted steps it's taken to preserve abortion access. But when it comes to using Medicaid, states aren't biting. My colleague Megan Messerly, I'm recording, is here with the story. So back in August, President Joe Biden signed this executive order directing HHS Secretary Javier Becerra to work with states on a plan to use their state Medicaid programs to help expand access to abortion for people who live in states where abortion access is restricted. So the short of this is that the Biden administration wanted states to come up with innovative ideas. There's this what's known as a Section 1115 demonstration waiver, which basically allows states to ask the federal government for permission to use federal Medicaid dollars in innovative ways. And this is basically what the Biden administration wanted states to do. Mm -hmm. The problem is that so far, no states have taken them up on this offer. And there's a few factors at play here. The big one is that this Section 1115 demonstration waiver process is kind of cumbersome. It's just sort of administratively burdensome. Another thing is that, you know, I've been talking with states and they're telling me we don't know what the Biden administration is willing to approve. You know, we're sort of not sure what they're looking for here. Now, there are states that are having conversations with the Biden administration, with CMS, trying to bounce around ideas, what they might be able to cover. Um, but it's worth pointing out that the the big issue here for states is the federal Hyde Amendment, right? That amendment says that uh, federal Medicaid money can't be used for abortions except in cases of rape, incest, or to protect the pregnant person's life. And so states are trying to get innovative and think through, okay, well, how can we use, you know, federal dollars here without running afoul of the Hyde Amendment? So for instance, Connecticut is eyeing covering transportation and lodging for people who are seeking Hyde-eligible abortions but can't access them in their home state. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, the Medicaid process, the waiver process can take a lot of time, uh, valuable time that states could be sort of pioneering other things. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that's worth noting is that at the same time, you know, states are pursuing their own strategies to try to expand access to abortion, not only for their residents, but actually a lot of them are thinking through how they might be able to expand access for out-of-state residents. Mm -hmm. Like just earlier this year, Oregon lawmakers approved $15 million in grants to community organizations. Those organizations could help out-of-state residents, you know, come to Oregon to obtain abortions. New York State, California have also allocated millions of dollars for this. And so it is this question of, okay, how much effort do state Medicaid agencies want to put in 
to this rather complicated waiver process to maybe be able to help people with these, you know, travel expenses and lodging expenses when they might just be able to use, you know, their state dollars <laughs> and, a, and a lot less red tape there to do the same. I mean, obviously, I think states that are eyeing this are sort of grateful for the federal government's help and are interested in the prospect of, you know, being able to get federal dollars for this. It's just a question of like how many hoops they're going to have to jump through to actually be able to access that money. Right, exactly. And, you know, like some of the sources you talk to for this story say, you know, this is completely uncharted territory, you know, legally and just policy wise, right? Exactly. Yeah. The the one thing that kept coming up is, you know, like a Section 1115 demonstration waiver has never been used in this way. I think states are also cognizant, too, of the fact that whatever policy they ultimately if they do ultimately decide to submit a waiver application, I think states are cognizant of the fact that this is likely to be challenged in court, right? We've seen already a tremendous amount of abortion-related litigation pop up in the courts after the sure. Dobbs decision came down in June. So I think there's also this acknowledgement of, you know, again, the states that are interested in increasing access to abortion, you know, I, I think they're like open to trying the solution, but also just acknowledging the fact that this could get tied up in litigation for for months or years. And in the meantime, they might be able to use state dollars to accomplish something when there are no you know restrictions on what those state dollars can be used to do. Megan, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join me today and sort of walk us through this really important issue. Of course. Thanks for having me. An item that I'm covering this week is a battle over a dialysis coverage bill that Congress introduced following a Supreme Court decision also from June. Dialysis providers and patient groups argue that the bill is needed to fix a loophole that's been left by the Supreme Court decision and could leave patients without valuable coverage for dialysis services, which can often be costly. Meanwhile, employer-based groups are fighting back, saying that The bill is basically a blank check for giant dialysis companies like DeVita and Fresenius, which own 75% of the market. This is a complex issue involving an even more complicated area of the law and has two very powerful interests fighting against each other. The patients who say they're just fixing a loophole left open by the Supreme Court and powerful employers saying that it goes too far and is a giveaway to giant dialysis companies. Hi, I'm James Gelfand. I talked with James Gelfand, the president of the URSA Industry Committee, who talked with me a little bit about what he says would happen. If this bill was to pass, employers would have a simple choice. Either write a blank check to DeVita and Fresenius, the two monopolistic companies that control most of the dialysis centers throughout the United States, or make significant cuts in their benefits plan for everyone who has a chronic disease other than kidney failure. I also spoke with Harant Jemgoshin, the CEO of Dialysis Patient Citizens, one of the patient groups that's trying to elevate patient voices as they speak to Congress on this bill, saying that it's essential to preserve the status quo in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. He pointed me to his group's website, which has compiled videos and patient testimonials of why dialysis coverage by private insurers is important to them. And when I became eligible for Medicare, my private insurance no longer wanted to pay for dialysis treatments for me. I had to switch to Medicare. And when I switched to Medicare, my daughter wasn't eligible. She lost her insurance because of my condition. They sort of intertwined my insurance and my condition and my daughter, who has nothing to do with it. 
sort of unfair. So with Congress out before the election and the dwindling number of legislative days left in this session, it's unclear what's going to happen with this bill. However, lobbyists are talking about how this could save a lot of money, which could fund lawmakers' other projects at an end-of-the-year spending bill. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Rees is our producer. Our editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. And I'm Megan Wilson. Thanks for listening and talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.